hello, hello. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of sports, in the worlds of adventure, culture, innovation. Today's guest is a hybrid of sorts, actually. His name is John Rose. He's a former professional surfer turned humanitarian. He started an organization called Waves for Water, which uh, seeks to bring potable drinking water uh, to places that need it the most in the third world. He's worked in um, uh, disaster relief zones in Haiti, in Indonesia. That's where he got his start after an earthquake in Indonesia. He works with a very simple filtration system, and his idea is anyone can do this, and the world water crisis can absolutely be solved. All it takes is someone taking the first step, and so we talked to him about taking that first step. We talked to him also about the the definition of what a humanitarian is and how he actually refuses to be defined as such because he just sees this as one more chapter in his life and and he thinks really that that anyone can do this and so we spent a bit of time talking about that we spent a bit of time talking about the craziness of being a professional surfer in in the 90s and late 90s and and the crisis that that kind of led to this new path um, I should also say that uh, Waves for Water is a documentary on Red Bull TV that's coming out soon. Uh, it should be out there now on the platform. And uh, it's a really good watch. And uh, this is a really interesting interview. Uh, he's got a lot of great perspective on things. So um, you can uh, listen to this interview at redbulletin.com. Uh, of course, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, you're already listening to us. Same thing as with our host, partner Acast. Uh, okay, let's start the show. You uh, travel at least two weeks out of the month. So how did you find time to even come today? Like, what is that existence all about? God, it's weird because I actually even have a correction for you. Okay. And, and, um, already. Uh, already. This is starting great. It's starting great. No. Um, and I didn't know this until... Uh, my accountant last year, we were going over some stuff and he just had certain stats for me, you know, certain things that I was doing and consistencies. And, um, he said, you're on average out of the United States 20 days a month. Wow. So that just didn't make sense to me. I, I couldn't even com- right. comprehend that. Cause I'm like, okay, so I'm only 10 days a month in the United States. Yeah. I'm like, am I still a citizen? No, <laughs> you're <know>? a pirate. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? And of course, it's not 20 days out, 10 days on. This is the average. So it doesn't feel like maybe only 10 days back because I'll be back more frequently. Sure. But if you added it all up and the average per month is 10 days, I um, actually don't pay state taxes anymore. Yes. <laughs> because you have to spend a certain amount of time in the state to be be great a resident. So yeah. yeah that, well, that's good because California state taxes are no joke. Yeah, they're no joke. Um but it's not not something I'm necessarily proud of or anything like that. It was just more of this like thing that I uncovered. This realization. Like, realization for the amount of time that I'm gone. And you've decided to double down on that because we've, before we started recording, you just told me that you gave up both your place in Topanga Canyon and your place in New York City. And why is that? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I, I guess it was just about... Um, I just change more than anything. I mean, reality is like, like, like you said, it's an idyllic situation, right? You've got Topanga Canyon and then you've got New York city and you've got this juxtaposition of energies and places and cultures and personality. And that served me very, very well for the last seven years. 
Um, I was in New York for the last four, um, and then Topanga, I've had it for seven. Um, and it's been a nice balance. I looked at Topanga as like my little sanctuary to stay connected to Southern my Southern California roots, to be able to have all my toys, you know, right. go surf, go ride motos in the canyons and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then New York was where I was really focusing for my business, for, for, for the organization of Waves for Water. Because people get shit done in New York. I call it the get shit done capital of the world. You're not wrong when you say that. (laughs) Yeah. It it, it has this urgency and energy that you don't really find in Los Angeles or elsewhere in the country even. And the cross-section of people that you're going to come across. I mean, we have some of our biggest partners there. That's how I justified it in the beginning. Like, you know, okay, these are the people that are helping to support our initiatives globally. I want to be close to them so that we can keep growing those relationships. Sure. But just, I mean, if I spent a week in New York City our business would grow in that one week. Right. Like I, I could, I could tangibly share why. I mean, I would, but I couldn't anticipate it. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Afterwards, I'm like, there's Ugh. the connections that you make there that, that are very random. Just and, being there mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of be in, being involved in that energy and momentum yeah. of that city. And so our organization and its success is largely in part to about four years ago, deciding to, quote unquote headquarter out of there right um we don't have an office we yeah. don't need one because we work internationally um, but some of my core team is there and you know we're constantly when we're there it's really just about meetings and stuff like that but um and and sort of business development but <clears throat> to the point of letting both of those places go you know it got for me i would say last year so 2016 and specifically 2015 were were years that were like boiling to the surface for me in terms of intensity, intensity of what we were doing. You know, I started out living in a tent in Haiti. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward six years, we have a global organization. I have a lot of people that work for me. I have um, managing programs in 17 countries. Yeah, the steep learning curve. Steep and quick trajectory. Right. Um, so I was feeling the not just the pressure of that but just the weight of it you know just like trying to find my own balance you know being gone 20 days a month and even if i'm gone doing some fun stuff on the side in those places it's still i'm gone i'm still out there and and my initial reason for being in that region was for work so i go ahead sorry but the sense of gone only only is is a valid term for it if if you have some place to come back to right true so so you know what you're essentially giving up is you're essentially giving up a place to come back to so you're constantly floating constantly moving but being on the road that journey is then is your life is your destination the whole time yo man i've gone i've gone down the wormhole of of thinking about what home means right you know what and for me the what's familiar and what feels consistent and relaxing is being moving you know i don't and 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 really a sense of community so do i have these this a good sense of community in the places that i'm in meaning people that um sort of love and cherish me unconditionally um and i do i have good teams all over the world of people not just work teams but just people that i've become close with over the years um and so i feel very comfortable out there in this constant state of movement um so I'd come home and I would either recoup for a few days in Topanga or I would come and hustle in New York. But the reality is most of the month, both those places were empty. 
and I'm paying rent on both those places. And it was just like, I just hit this point at the end of last year where I said, you know what, it's going to, we've, I've been working so hard at developing teams and building our, our programs and building everything to a point where it's kind of working <laughs> and I have good people and yeah. people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and everything. And I'm going to make some changes for me and put a little bit more balance in my life. And I'm going to start that off. You'd think that it would be to stay home more, yeah. but I'm going to start that off with freeing myself up completely and I'll still be traveling, but I don't necessarily have to spend months on end in these places because I have local teams and regional teams. So I can just stop in, check, you know, validate the teams and, and check in on the work and then really get in touch with where I want to land. You know, what, what, what's going to serve me from like a soul standpoint? So do you think this is temporary, this life in transit? Is it a kind of a, a, a period in which you... You're uh, deciding where you want to, where you want home to be, then, or yeah, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put some something down somewhere, but yeah. that doesn't mean like I'm gonna go buy a house or something and just dive into it. It just means that what my new chapter, what what the new idea of home, uh-huh. whatever that is, that where is that? Like I don't really know. And, yeah. and to be honest, that's probably more along the lines of like a Jackson Hole or somewhere like that, where. If it's when I think about coming back to something, all the things that I love to do are at my doorstep. Yeah. I'm not there for, I'm not in New York for work. I'm not in LA because I want to be near the, the Southern California ocean or surf scene. Those are all reasons. It's more just completely serving me from a soul standpoint at this point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I I have the luxury of doing that because I work internationally. So if I'm only going to be home 10 days a month or even 20 or 15, what's truly going to serve me and I'm not there for any other reasons. So you have to be really in tune with what serves you, right? You have to be really in tune with what you, what is very important to you. And was that a difficult, I mean, was it difficult to understand what things are really important to you? Do you find that you're still trying to figure it out? By the way, we started super ethereally right now. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) I do want to get back into your background and all that, but, but, um, I mean, was it a, uh, was it, uh, have you made that? Have you have you found those things that are very very important to you, and you can identify them? I have. You know what? It's it's been it's pretty simple, and for me, it comes down to um, learning. So, like the learning curve of things that I'm not good at is big. The learning curve of things that I'm good at is smaller. They're micro adjustments, and we typically, as we get older, just do the things we're good at. Yeah, because it's uncomfortable to do the things you're not good at. Yeah, and yeah. so I have this big, and especially as a, I was a pro athlete for a long time, and there was all these other interests that I had that yeah. I just pushed to the side because I was afraid to get hurt, because I had contracts at stake and stuff like that. So I'm almost looking at this as like a, a rebirth. I'm still young. I still I'm still fit to be able to just be like, no, I want to become a great rock climber. I want to be a, become a, an alpinist. I want to become a mm-hmm. you know, good motorcyclist, racer, all these things that I love to do. I can place myself in a, in, in a, I can put myself in a place in the world that has access to all those things and I can be that kid again. I can be that grommet who's learning and be like, oh my God, I just did my first five, nine move today. Or, oh my God, I just did this because I can. And, 
so I'm basically want to put myself into a playground of all those things that I love to do and learn how to do them good. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> no, no, that's great. And and uh, we should say you you were a pro surfer for many years, um, but you were born in Colorado, so there's something incongruous in that. Um, how how did that happen? Yeah, my dad was a ski instructor um, back Which, in the day. Uh, also, doesn't make sense, by the way, why you'd be a surfer. But keep going. Yeah. you're going to eventually explain this. So. Well, it's cool. Yeah, I think the athletic roots come from him. My mom's really athletic too. But um, but he was a he grew up in the South Bay, um, so right here in in Los Angeles, um, Torrance, and grew up surfing. And then, but um, started skiing. His dad, my grandpa, who's still alive, by the way, ninety eight. Props. Um, props. To props grandpa to grandpa right pops. <laughs> Shout out to grandpa right grandpa. now. Grandpa. Yeah. Um, What's his name? Pete. 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 Pete Rose? Yeah. No. Are you serious? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Is he ever going to get in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. Anyway, no. go ahead. Um, so he uh, he was very adventurous outdoors. He would take my dad up to Yosemite and take him up to the snow. And my dad fell in love with skiing in, in his high school years. And as soon as he graduated, just moved to Mammoth and skied every day, skied every day, and then became quite good. And then said, I'm going to ski bum through the Rockies. Went through there, became very good. Um became a ski instructor and met my mom in Colorado and they were, you know, hippie parents and they had me there. And when I was about two years old, my dad said, okay, you know, I remember growing up on the beach. There's nothing like it, you know, for a kid, like, let's go, let's have our son grow up on the beach. So we moved from Colorado to San Clemente for about three or four years. And then some of his old buddies from the Rockies, the ski instructor guys said, Hey, there's a, there's a park opening in, or we're opening a park in Mount Shasta in Northern California, a yeah. small little park. I know. My mom lives up there. Yeah. yeah. So they asked my dad if he'd run the ski school for that. No way. So we moved up there. And I lived in Mount Shasta from about 6 until 10. And I it was such a cool, honestly, the most vivid memories that I have as a child were from that 6 years old to 10-year-old period of time in Mount Shasta and every scar on my body. <laughs> Because in the summers, you know, you just get in, in trouble because there's yeah. nothing to do. I mean, there's plenty to do, but you're just running and jumping and breaking things and jumping off things. And But it was such a great time to get introduced into the mountains and the snow. And then my parents got divorced when I was 10, and I went with my dad, and we went back down to Southern California to Laguna Beach and and right. lived there. And that's when I started surfing at 10. Okay. So my dad had surfing roots. I mean, he came from that. I mean, he's a world-class skier, but he... You know, it was, he never pushed me into it, but he placed me as a carpenter. So we just, we lived in this little studio in Laguna Beach. I slept on the couch. He slept on the bed in the same room. Um, you know, it's a pretty affluent area. At that time, it, it, it was an affluent area, but he, but it was also had great roots, Laguna Beach. It had like old artists, kind of hippie roots and at that time was on the tail end of that and starting now where it gets more into orange so, county type what are we talking vibe. about late 80s early 90s yeah this would have been 88 yeah yeah when we moved there and um he was just like one of those people that was in the know you know he he just was like this is a great place to raise a kid and i know maybe we don't have the resources to to do it like everyone else is doing that but we can do it i mean let's you know and he said one thing to me that was so he gave me the choice. He said, here's the deal. We can live in this studio, but it's two blocks from the beach, but we sleep in the same room. Or we can move to the next town inland and you can have your own bed or your own your own bedroom. And I and I was like, Well, let's just stay let's stay here at the beach, you know. But it was so cool to have a parent 
give you that option. Yeah, I mean, parents 99.9% of the time are just going to make the choices for their kids, which which is probably good in a lot of cases. But to give a, a 10-year-old like a, a decision that's going to not only affect my life but his yeah, yeah, is huge. Well, that's really empowering. So empowering. Did you understand that at that time? No. No. No, I didn't, but I do now. And I, and I, I reference a th- tons of things that he does yeah. or that he did back then, sorry, um, that were – really kind of unorthodox parenting moves that are quite amazing. Right. You know, that that to me, I mean, that changed my life. Had I just said, oh, I want to go to the town inland just to have my own room, I wouldn't have become a pro surfer. There's no way. Because yeah. the beach, because we were two blocks from the beach, the beach became my babysitter. So he, and he knew that. He was like, look, I get off work at five. You get off work at, you get off school at 2.30. Get home, go to the beach hang out there because he also knew like the local surf crew there, like the, you know, any surf culture of small towns in Southern California or anywhere really is there's this family there's, you know, there's 40 year old guys hanging with 13 year old guys, you know, they're all this pecking order and there's this kind of group. You're part of the same tribe and the beach brings you together and those waves bring you together. He knew that that those are some kind of older uh, mentors so to speak, that could be watching out for me. So he said, go to the beach when you get off at 2.30 and then be back home at 5.30 when I get home and we'll do your homework and so be it. Wow. And from 2.30 to 5.30, what'd you do? Surf. Right. Yeah, I surfed right. every day, you know, and it was like... Even when there were no waves? Oh, yeah. Me and my friend Jason, who uh, became my best friend in town, he had a similar situation, single mother, and they rented the studio above us. And so imagine living with your best friend, like two blocks from the beach, and I'd throw little rocks at his window, and I'd be like, hey, let's go surf. You know, like he'd come down. We had this system where he'd climb down off this tree. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really awesome, man, and to be able to – and then just, you know, I became obsessed with surfing. I mean, it was just so fun. What it was, was it about it? Well, I'm a pretty competitive guy too, um, and – I think back then it was a way, it was an outlet for me, not yeah. just for the competitive nature that I had, but also just to, you know, I had a lot of changes in my life. I had, you know, moved around. My parents had split up, all these types of things. It was, I was in a new town. It was definitely like a, an outlet to be able to go f- put a lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> you sometimes know, positive, angry, sometimes positive and angry negative. energy in a, in a positive way. Yeah, and it kept me... I've, what I've realized about myself now is that I I have an ability to focus incredible like, like a hyper focus. You know, I have an ability to put my mind on one thing and just do it day after day after day after day after day at all costs. Almost. I wonder if that's something surfing taught you, or if, if that was just innate that you first that first manifested itself in surfing. I think know? I think it I think it's the latter. Uh-huh. I think it's the latter because I think it's something. I think we all have our personalities that we sure. you know we're born with, and um, and there's a lot of things that make up that personality. Why you are the way you are, but that's something that I realized about myself specifically when I applied applied it towards surfing. But every every other thing that I've ever done. You know, it's like I, I always say some, sometimes when I'm speaking to like a, kids at a school or university or something like that, I, you know, I said, if you just simply do what you say you're going to do in life, you'll be very successful. It doesn't mean you don't even have to be that smart. And it, it doesn't mean maybe you'll be a millionaire, but you will guaranteed be successful, guaranteed, because so many people don't have follow through. 
if you have the ability to innovate with that follow through, then you'll be a game changer. You'll be an absolute game changer. But you can, I always found that kind of comforting because that is the secret to success, in my opinion, is doing what you say you're going to do, no matter what. How much is the um, ambition part of that? Because, you know, um, I I just uh, heard this interview with this world-famous explorer, and he said his father told him that if your dreams aren't big enough and if they don't scare you, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> So, so I, I mean, not, not to advocate for unrealistic expectations, but how, you know, how much is it about, um, understand, you know, doing something realistic as opposed to doing something, you know, where's the balance there between realistic and, and the fantastical? Well, I think there's, a, so I, all, all I do with my practices throughout life is, is figure out these indicators or barometers for me of how I, and then how I can make decisions based off that. So like the, what I did explanation I just gave before about follow through, I think that is just a standardized way to a standard success. And standard success is still success. Yeah. But it's not exceptional or anything like that. But still, it just, for me, that's comforting because it's like anyone can do that. They actually have the power to do that. But they may not be ambitious. They may not have big dreams. They may be scared or fearful. But if they just every day wake up and do what they say they're going to do over and over and over, it builds credibility. It builds all these things. And eventually they will achieve some level of success. So that's one thing. On the other side is crazy. So for me, the notion of crazy is the best possible thing you could be, you could be described as. So there was a quote um, that was told to me from a guy in in Haiti. I I got invited to go to a a voodoo pilgrimage there. It was 20,000 Haitians and myself. Crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. And I was in the, I mean, it was so intense. The the voodoo ceremony is going on every little house and just 20,000 people in this tiny little village. It's called Sodo. Um, It happens up in the mountains above Port-au-Prince. And I was in the back of a pickup truck, and I was looking at this guy. And still, my favorite quote: I was looking at this Haitian guy. He's a lawyer, actually. And I said, and his name was Jackson. And I said, Jackson, this is crazy, man. He's like, John, the crazy to the world goes. So obviously broken English, but basically, the crazies get this world, get mm. all, get all that this world has to offer, all of the amazing things that this world has to offer goes to the crazy the people crazy enough to do the stuff because it because it means taking risk and it means getting outside of comfort zones and and getting beyond exactly what you fathom to be life and world and yeah so so i thought about that a lot i thought about that quote i thought about that quote and what what i realized was that since i was a kid all everyone's always been calling me crazy my friends my family because i'd come back from a choice that i made and it'd be like man you're crazy or like they roll their eyes, John. Oh, he's going to Afghanistan. He's going, and it's all, everyone, no matter what, whether it was business related or you know athleticism, whatever. It was always like somebody there going, "That's crazy, that's crazy." Even if it was just under their breath, but still. And I now I associate that that but that's my barometer. If if people aren't telling me what I'm doing is crazy, then it's I got to rethink it. Right. Right. Like if they're telling you you're doing, if they're telling you what you're doing is crazy, then you're on the right track. 
right. in my opinion. Right. So you right. wanna you wanna stay crazy, you wanna look for you, you don't wanna do it just to receive that either. So there's a fine line of like, yeah, you can jump off a cliff and people will be like, That guy's crazy, but not in a good way. Yeah. So there's a fine line, but it's like, you know, in, in those those choices, those risk taking moments where you're like, Is this crazy? If you're asking yourself that, chances are you're on the right track. That's an incredibly empowering feeling to have harnessed. Um, did it begin with your dream of becoming a pro surfer? Yeah, I think so. Totally. I think. How realistic was that? By the way, uh, you started, what, was it Quicksilver sponsorship at the age of 13? No, 17. 17 I was with okay. Billabong for, um, for my entire amateur career from 13 to 17. And then when I turned pro, I was with Quicksilver for 13 years. Yeah, but so getting his own amateur career at 13, three years after you really start surfing, that's, that just that's means good, right? That's like a good thing. Like I've been surfing for four years and I'm like a barely beginner. <laughs> no, I mean like barely intermediate. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough sport. And I don't know if it's like ski jumping where, you know, you got to be like six years old in order to start it uh, and really get comfortable at it and get good at it, you know, or if it's something from, you know, if you do it every day when you're 10 and I think there's a certain amount of natural ability that has to be there, uh, just athletic ability. Sure. Um, but, but I mean, we all know this, especially being older now, like learning something when you're young is so much easier. Especially, and I, I think it's your body, but I also think it's just how free your mind is too. Right, right. Like we have responsibility now. I have so many other things going on in my brain at all times that I can't even really just focus on what I'm doing when it comes to like a uh, sport. You know, I'm thinking about a million other things. And when you're 11 years old or you're 10 years old and all you're doing is surfing, you're just focused a thousand percent on that one off the lip or that one cutback or that one barrel, you're just like going for it, going for it all day, every day. And you don't have any other responsibility. All you have to do is the dentist is one <laughs> and homework and school. That's it. I mean, that is literally it. Maybe you have a dog and you have to feed it. Um, but that is it. So this becomes like your biggest responsibility in, in your eyes is to become good at this. And of course, there's so much momentum that, that comes with, with getting good at something at an early age, you know, the confidence that comes along, the way you carry yourself at school, everything changes. You're better than everyone else. So, or at the, you're, or you're at the top. So there's something that's just so empowering about that, that carries on for the rest of your life, being really good at something. And so I think I really just felt that that felt so good. And an amateur career really just means you're doing, um, you're doing uh, the amateur contest circuit every weekend. Mm -hmm. So Pops and I would load up the VW van, drive to Ventura or drive to San Diego or drive to these places and, you know, compete. And then you start to meet other kids in, in those communities that are doing the same thing. And then you create a network with them and this competitive camaraderie. And it's so formative for so many other aspects of your life. It's amazing. Did that continue on into the pro circuit as well, or, or did it change a bit there? It changes once you have money, like a lot of money at stake. And at that time, the money came from endorsements. It wasn't about the contest. The contest winnings were decent, but not like where they are now. You really were focused on, I mean, the, the tour was totally different. There was no webcast. You know, there was no waiting period. Mm -hmm. So there was no... You know, you'd, you'd train and then you'd have a contest in England 
on the tip of England. People are like, there's surf in England? Well, there is, and there was a contest there. And you go down there, and you fly all the way there. You, you know, it'd show up, be raining and high tide and flat, and that's your heat, and don't even catch a wave. Oh, they would hold it anyway. Yeah, because because there's no <laughs> waiting thing. period yeah. because it was like the weekend, and that's when sponsors thought the most people were going to be down there. Now they've realized that it's it's better for sponsors, even if it happens on a Tuesday, if there's better waves because there's all they're also capturing it now and broadcasting it, and so it's totally changed. But at the time, there was no live feed. There was nothing. So it was all about the people on the beach. Yeah. And the people on the beach are not going to come on a Tuesday during work. Yeah. So they just have, and then so so our our playing field would be compromised, um, and and that would be compromised. And sometimes, but the thing is, is everyone was dealing with the same conditions. But sure. it just, but it just felt a little bit like God, man, this is so frustrating, you know, because you don't really get to show what you've been working on, and yeah. So it became at that time in pro surfing, it became more about the videos and the photos and the trips that you could do for free surfing in a sense that became more valuable in a lot of ways, still valuable to win a tour, a title. Um, but um, it became in that time period because it was, you'd go out and explore and find good waves and show what you had and document it and then people would see it. So you get more money from the sponsorships for that. So where did you travel to to do stuff like that, to free surf? Um, in the beginning, you know, it was pretty standard like Indonesia, Tavarua, those types of places. Um, I remember going to my first time to Bali. Um, I I got a cover shot there, and it was a very—I don't want to say by accident, but it was just you know it was a group of us who went, and I just ended up having to get one good wave that everyone got a bunch of good waves, but then it, you know, the get guy the, photo, the guy the was right on, there, right, yeah, and it happened, right. it, but it definitely spearheaded a, my career in a direction um, less of contests and more of free surfing. Then I'd say in the second half of my career, I really tried to challenge myself in terms of okay, I don't just want to go be a slave to. Uh, filming or photos, how do I challenge myself uh, creatively? Do I go to places that I've never been surfed? Do I try and create more dynamic adventures? And I did so um, a few times. Like one, I I um, rode a motorcycle from Tijuana down to Cabo and fabricated a board rack on the side and, you know, camped along the way and was trying to find ways you couldn't get to by car. And stuff like that, you know, like we're really kind of pushing the envelope of surf adventure, travel and exploration. Um, and that seemed pretty stimulating to me because just trying to go down when the light was good and the waves were good just to get hopefully get a photo in a magazine was not that appealing to me anymore. Because did you want to soak up the local culture as well? Did you want to, yeah. was that part, so much a part of it? Because how, back then, I mean, nowadays it's, as you referred to, the, the surfing tour is so professionalized and, and there's so much money involved. Um, you know, um, surfers are you know, undergo high performance training, they're cloistered off from others, you know, that sort of thing. And back then, was it was it that degree of professionalization? Or it sounded it sounds like it was kind of like you were an entrepreneur within this professional surfing circuit. And that's what was demanded of you, actually, you know, kind of. Yeah, I think that's a good parallel. I think it is. And I think ultimately, every pro athlete is an entrepreneur at this point, especially with a sport that is not a team sport. You are your company, right? You 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 are your brand, and how are you going to be different than the next guy? You know, and the one main way you're different is by your ranking. So that's clear, but that's just one sort of m more sterile system, right? 
okay, he's 24 and I'm 16 or whatever. But how are you personality-wise going to be different? And not in a contrived way, but how are you going to communicate who you are, who you really are in the in this environment that is um, kind of all... It's so funny because surfers are looked at so much as like these, like, you know, hippie. Almost the 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 history of surfers is very like open minded hippie, rebellious, you know, rebellious counterculture, and it's pretty closed minded actually. Like, I don't mean closed minded, not being not open to things, but a pretty extreme tunnel vision of the way that they see the see the world, and it's through this certain lens, which I would I would argue is probably the same in most sports in at that level and especially the solo ones you've always got the one person the few people who are different but i think most of it's like i remember i used to travel around the world on the circuit and you know i'd been to to some of these places 10 times and i hadn't really seen much of them right right and yeah you have a i mean flat i'm sure day. you visit them now with your nonprofit and see a completely different side of it oh right? my god yeah and I mean, and back then would so would you say you had that same tel- tunnel vision totally Totally, and 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 it was because what all, was it about for you? It was about performance. I mean, it was strictly about performance. And, oh yeah, and I'm in France, and 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 oh, there's a flat day. Let's go to that castle. Cool, you go to a castle, and like you kind of do that. But it's almost like even the offsite stuff is still kind of within a certain bubble. It's like right. the cl- kind of like cliche Rick travel, like yeah. you know <laughs> that. <laughs> Like wear your zip away pants and go yeah. to the castle with your guidebook. And everyone's like, cool, we got some culture today. We got <laughs> yeah. some culture today. And yeah, I, but you were really after girls. We're after girls. Because we you're were surfers. We are partying a ton. Yeah. And yeah. to your point of professionalism, I mean, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say speak for everyone in that generation, but definitely my group, I was and my group was, and we were, we, I, I feel like we were the first generation of surfers, pro surfers to make decent money but still not have very many rules. Right. And now they they make a lot more money, but they have more rules. And the guys before us didn't make much money at all, but had zero rules. <laughs> so we so had, which era would you have preferred to have been in? The one we were in. I mean, it was the right. sweet spot. It was such, when was this? What year? This was it? like 97 to like 2008 or nine. you know, right. like basically right. 10, this 10 year period of time, 97 uh, to 2007. And uh, what was your highest tour ranking? I I was like in the fifties of uh, the QS one year. That's crazy. Yeah. So you work your ass off. You're still able to, you know, earn a good, decent living. Uh, you travel around the world, and it's still it's there's so many. There's like forty eight other dudes or fifty other dudes ahead of you. Who oh are, yeah, yeah. And that was not even like you know that, that was. Was I, that hard? I, I was never. Yeah, I was never the best. I was never. Um, and I was also even from an early age. Uh, a realist about almost everything. Um, but I knew, you know, I definitely knew that I had a place and I knew what my, my thread was. And I knew that I could make a, make a way for myself, which I did. And I supported a really nice lifestyle for 13 years. I stayed all my sponsors. I was with almost those entire that entire span of time, which says a lot about the um, integrity of the relationships and and also my own performance and just what I was doing. There was ups and downs, injuries, you know, yeah. marriages, divorces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. During that time, you got married and divorced? Yeah, I did. Um, 
tough to marry a pro surfer, huh? Probably. I don't know. You'd have to ask her, but I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure, it sure she might easy. say they probably don't need to go into that now. Yeah, but no. uh, <laughs> So uh, was there a sense that it was coming to an end? Yeah, absolutely. And was that panicky for you? That's Man, it. yeah, it was such a weird deal because, as I said before, I was never the best, but I knew that I had a place in it, and you knew, I knew that I could, like, genuinely do this as a living and I did for many years and then it the writing's kind of on the wall you know you're you're just not as good as the kids it it was a tough time because I think anybody you know I turned pro out of high school it was the only job I ever had you know and I got I think one thing about pro surfers or pro athletes that people don't know is that they get quite good at negotiating they get quite good at understanding marketing and the value of an image an image exactly and i think that there's actually a a skill set that's learned there that maybe they didn't you know and some guys don't have it as well but by the end of it i felt like pretty good understanding of um my value that being said it was all tied to the surfing world and my own identity too was that i was like you know i was so tied to the identity of myself john rose the pro surfer um, I, I liked other things. I liked photography. I liked writing. I liked all these things, but I'd never made money at them. So as, and I, and I knew I didn't want to be one of those guys that was milking it. I just, I just didn't want to do it. I, I know I probably could have gone a couple more years with, you know, I, my contract came, finally came to an end with Quicksilver and I, I, the writing was kind of on the wall and I maybe could have gone to a smaller brand and got another sponsorship and gone another few years, but how old were you, by the way? I was like 29. 29. Which, I mean, this day and age is fairly young. Like, I think guys are going, you know, into their mid-30s pretty easily. Um, Kelly's like an anomaly. You don't even want to talk about him. Yeah, yeah, um, he's like a unicorn. Yeah, he's a total unicorn. Yeah. Um, but I think um, with – it's a young sport. All pro, pro sports are very young. I mean, the guys – that are 19 look at gabriel medina i mean he was i think he won at 20 or 21 or something yeah it's crazy so you know you gotta there's something to be said about that but then there's also something to be said about experience and all that stuff so you can go but for me i just felt like it was time for a new chapter and it was scary i didn't know what i was going to do i definitely felt resourceful as a person I felt like I'm always, and I know that I learned that from my dad. And, you know, I grew up with not a lot. And uh, in those days when we were living in the same room and, you know, just watching the struggles of a parent trying to provide, um, but always pulling it off. Yeah. Like just making certain choices that are the right ones. Like, okay, so we'll eat canned soup and this for three days, you know, but then we'll get to go do this. And this is a this is a dynamic thing over here um, for my child and his growth, and so I know I I knew I was a survivor. I knew I could always provide. I was married. It was kind of coming towards the end of that too, um, and I think it was probably really hard for her too to just um, watch me go through that. You know, just my kind of lose sense of my identity. When reality now, I look back and I'm like, okay, well, I was always John Rose. This is who I am. I was born. I was born this person, and that's not my identity. That's just something that enhanced who I am. The same as anything else I do in my life. Um, and so many of us get caught in 
to the story of who we think we are rather than just who we are and who we're born as. Because you are who you are and then everything else comes as layers on top of that. And so it's been like a constant pursuit for me to get back in touch with who I am at my deepest core. And um, at that time, I had no idea. I was totally wrapped in this story of this pro surfer. So it was scary. I knew I would provide, I knew, but it was just more just like, well, if I'm not that, then what am I? Right. That's a very scary question to ask yourself. Super scary. And especially, but then it's, it's kind of sad too. It's like, what do you mean if I'm not that, if I'm not what, you know, I, what an, a pro athlete of this, a, a producer, a singer, a scientist or whatever, like those are great things, but they do not define you. Ultimately, they do not define you. And that's something that I really believe nowadays is anything that I bring into the fold. Now people, you know, see my obsession with waves for water and they think that now I'm a humanitarian. I'm not. I'm me. And this is now what my new chapter is. And I, and it's definitely enhancing my experience here on earth for sure. But it doesn't define me at all. I could potentially do 10 other things. Yeah, but it's a lot cooler to do what you're doing, right? Totally. No, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, I could do 10 other things after this. You could be a con this, artist. After could, this, though. Right. Oh, yeah, you know of course. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I, totally. People are like, oh, yeah. this is your life's work. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's for sure one chapter of it. Yeah. How old are you now, by the way? <laughs> 38. Yeah, okay. Uh, so you were, you were 29. Uh, it was coming to an end. Um, there was a... There's an earthquake. I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you went to Indonesia for a surf trip, and that was for what? When was that? That was 2009, I mm-hmm. think, right? Yep. Uh, why did you go to Indonesia? Because my friend Jordan Tapas, um, who's one of my oldest buddies, um, I, he was part of that crew when I said that I started doing those um, amateur contests. Super good dude. Yeah, he's great. Um, those amateur contests that we talked about, you know, on the weekends, he was one of the Malibu kids. So he, he and I became best friends. You know, we were, we, whenever there was North contests in the North, I'd stay with him. He would stay with me. We're still best friends today. And, um, he was, uh, you know, always there for me during hard times, good times, everything. And when he knew I was kind of going through a rough time and, um, he said, Hey, I have this mentalized trip planned. And one of the guys backed out. So I'd love for you to go. You can take his spot and you won't, you'll, yours will be $1,000 less because he won't get his deposit back. He already put his deposit. And I was in no place to go on a surf trip financially. Uh, my contracts had kind of come to an end. I was doing odd jobs here and there. Like um, what? I mean, everything from hauling stuff to carpentry to, you know, whatever I could photography trying to like sell photos that i'd done because i yeah. like doing photography um hustle basically the hustling hustle. yeah. and i took our bill money for that month so the money that was for all of our bills i took it without telling my my ex-wife to pay because those trips are expensive they're like a few grand you know and i knew the only reason i did that was i mean it was kind of a dick move but I also knew that I was going to be back with like 10 days before all the bills were due. And I'm like, I'll figure it out. I'll sell something. I'll do something. I'll figure it out. I remember making this choice like, okay, I'll, 
I just, I just want to go right now. I want to go and get my mind clear. And, and this is a cool opportunity. And I just want to surf with friends. And I had at the same time, I had the idea for waves for water, um, not as a job, but just as a pet project. My, my, my dad, who I'm extremely close with, um, for many reasons, uh, had really taken to the water cause, uh, years prior and started a small little organization called Raincatcher. And, um, that was based on like him reading an article in the New York times about the Africa water crisis and about these women that had to walk all these miles to go get water. And he said, well, why don't they just catch rain? You know, he's, you know, he's a carpenter and he was like, so he saved up his money. This was years prior. This was probably like six or seven years prior to, to this point when I was going to Indo. Um, and he save up his money and go to Africa and teach people how to very rudimentary ways to how to catch rainwater. So he kind of brought the, the water crisis or water topic onto my radar. And then I said, well, that'd be pretty cool. Cause, and he realized just by people catching rain doesn't mean they're actually getting safe water. You're providing a source for them, but it's not necessarily clean if it falls on a dirty roof or if sure, if yeah. it's if it's held in a dirty uh, canister. So there has to be a cleaning component to it. So I started researching portable portable filtration systems and stuff like that, and and I just thought like, okay, as a pet project, it'd be pretty fun to go back to some of the places I love to serve, bring these filters with me, and teach people how to use them, and hopefully improve their quality of life. I mean but while we're surfing and having fun. Yeah, yeah. So that was the idea for Waves for Water. It was not supposed to be a job. It wasn't supposed to be a global organization. It was just going to be, I didn't even know what an NGO was. Did you think it would like, it would look good on a res or something like that? Or was it like kind of like, or was it just, hey, I've been here, I've seen this, it's, it's pretty tough. Let me see if I can make a small amount of difference. You know, it was very genuine in its intent to help. It was very genuine in its selfishness too. Not, for looking good on a resume but but I feel like I was I had this like grand idea that whenever whoever my next boss was going to be or whatever I was going to do I was going to walk in to such and such boss room and go hello sir thank you for hiring me I'm so excited to be working for you this is awesome I go to Indonesia twice a year with my organization <laughs> and my friends who are from the corporate world are like perfect example you're crazy you don't come in as a, a, a new a, hire entry, a new hire and dictate terms to your ceo that you leave twice a year when you want to and uh, but in my for surf trips for surf trips <laughs> right to help people to help people to help people you and know. help you surf also yeah. while you're helping them yeah but that was my plan i mean honestly i'm like wouldn't that be so cool you know, how cool. <laughs> it sounds makes sense to me, actually, <laughs> quite honestly. But so it was genuine and it's selfishness, but I can be candid about that because it wasn't supposed to be my job. It was, you know, it's not about being this savior or about saving anybody or anything like that. It was just like, look, I wanted to rally my crew. I wanted to go back to the places that had served us for so many years and, and be able to keep surfing them and help while we're there genuinely. But just as a little pet project. So I said, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. You know, I have kind of the concept in my head. I bought 10 water filters, my own money, went on the surf trip. And the idea was that we'd go surf for uh, 12 days through the Mentawai Islands. And then at the end of that trip, um, Jordy and I were going to go to another island for a few days, go to this other 
village that we had been to before, teach them how to use these filters, call it waves for water, you know, come home. So the the rest of the crew was going to go home. We were going to go for that little ex- extension. On the way back in, before we were able to go to that other village, that night uh, a quake hit. Um, the city that we were headed straight for, Padang, which is the capital of Sumatra, and the main thoroughfare for these trips. So we we had hit rough seas, and I think we had, I mean, our plan was to get in at a reasonable time that afternoon to Padang, check into our hotel. The next morning, everybody flies out. Me and Jordy fly to the other island, do our thing, and then go home a few days later. We got We hit rough seas, so we opted... And during that time is when the quake hit at night, and we felt it. And the captain said there's been a major earthquake, but we still it was just getting he was getting information on the CB, so it wasn't like not really like great intel. But we knew there was a quake. We didn't know how bad it was. And when we got to the harbor, he just said, "Hey, you know what? It sounds like the roads are down, and it sounds like it's really intense in there. It was all dark, so we didn't know." He's like, "Why? Why don't you guys just stay on the boat tonight?" It doesn't make sense us trying to like navigate all that. We don't even know what we're getting into. Um, so we never checked into our hotel. Um, we didn't tell them we were coming. We just didn't show up and um, stayed on the boat that night and woke up in the morning. I'll never forget it with a clear view of the city. And it was just sort of unrecognizable. Like I'd been through there many times before and seen certain key landmarks that I couldn't see anymore, you know shopping malls that were down buildings that were down sideways smoke fire that kind of stuff it's it looked very apocalyptic um but but i never experienced anything like this before so so really what it come down what it came down to was just this notion of instinct really it was it was some sense of responsibility because i had these filters on me not really knowing what to do but just saying to the captain, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but can I sleep on the boat tonight? Because at that point, everyone's just trying to get. We're all we're all trying to figure out like there's no cell service, so we're trying to get communications to our loved ones back home that we're okay. We don't really we haven't really been on the ground, so we don't really know what the situation is, but we know it's severe. We're getting reports like the airport's closed and damaged. We're getting reports, so everyone we're all kind of just figuring out like how to get home and be safe. And during that point, I just said, well, I'm probably not going to go to that other place. You know, it just seems obvious, like from instinct or my own sort of intuition that this place, it's common sense stuff, right? This place in front of me that I'm looking at probably needs these filters better than anywhere else at the moment. So I asked the captain, I said, hey, is it okay if I stay on the boat tonight? And um, it, can one of your guys take me in on the, on the dinghy and drop me off? And he said sure so I went in and um spent time on the ground there just kind of kind of flying by the seat of my pants like learning as I went really really making decisions based off of common sense and instinct and you would just go to people that looked like um I don't know, they were in charge of emergency relief and, and provide the filters? or how Yeah, did, it, it basically started, I mean, I guess it really does go back to that, like, common sense sort of instinct thing because if you, all of a sudden now you're presented with, all disaster relief is, is problem solving. It's one decision after another after another of, of 
how do I solve this problem? How do I achieve what I'm trying to achieve? Well, if my goal is to build filtration systems that are going to provide access to clean water for victims of this catastrophe, how do I do that? First, I need people, you know, people to, where are people congregating? Okay, well, there must be like a relief center somewhere, right? It must be, okay, well, I need to find that. Okay, so I stop some guy on a moped and says, you know, do you speak English? And I literally had a bag of filters. I didn't have the buckets or anything. I didn't have a way to make, I, so you have the all these tasks in front of you. And it's cool because they're small. They're significant, but they're small. Like, okay, I know I need to get buckets. So my only job right now is to get buckets. Or my only job is to find somebody who speaks English. Okay, they speak English. Cool. Next step. What is there a relief center around here? He doesn't know, but he does. He takes me over there. That person knows. They go get their car. They come back and get me. They take me to the relief center. Now that's checked off the list. Now I'm at the relief center. I explain what I do, explain what this will do. Once you get past that step, okay, we need to find buckets. Okay, so they allocate a couple people to me. And we go out through a ravaged city, and we're scouring for buckets. Can't find buckets, but I found some like old gasoline cans that had never been used. So grab those because I knew to build the system I could mimic buckets with that. I took my knife and cut the tops off and like did it, and all of a sudden now we need water. Okay, the water source is back over here. It's... It's a old well that's been contaminated. It's been there forever. The whole city has these wells. They're not using this water. It's yellow. It's contaminated. Okay, let's put it through the system. Now it's clean and filtered. Right. And now the, and then I and of course I'm learning those are like very obvious ones that I just went through, but there's a ton of little decisions and little epiphanies happening w- within each of those. So you're, I'm learning at this hyper speed. I mean, it's crazy the 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 speed, the learning curve for me in a in a catastrophic event like that, yeah. or for anyone, I think. Yeah. So I could have done this normally, like I had planned, and gone to some village, and it would have been slowed down dramatically. Right, but because right. of the time sensitivity and urgency of those situations, you have to make these decisions, and you see immediate results immediate impact that must have been very gratifying it's amazing and, and I, it also plays into your personality one of one who's very adaptable to new environments and new situations i mean that's comes that's like your story it's right? totally the colorado story. and a mount shasta to laguna beach to living you know living in a house with your mom and dad to living in a, a in a house in a in a one room two two blocks from the beach exactly you know, traveling the world so the adaptability and i mean the, definitely some of the biggest epiphanies too were just around the water topic itself because I was I was green at that point. I was like, made the system. I felt very good. Okay, now and at that point, these relief centers were just collecting bodies. They were collecting. There was two tents. There was wounded and dead. And so I'm like, you guys can drink clean water now, yay! And they said, no, man, we we have bottles of water. Like, there's bottles of water for at least the next few days to drink, but we're going to use this water to clean the wounded, which. I never knew. I was. I never even thought of that. But those types of lessons of, yeah. wow, the all these uses and and so so now these filters actually end up s- saving or helping thousands of people as opposed to hundreds because you're using the water in all these other ways that are going to potentially save their life. Right. And it's so it was such a breakthrough. I mean, just oh, my mind was exploding, and um, I. I basically went back forever changed, went back um, to the boat and I 
I, I remember just being completely a different person and just saying, you know, I can't believe what I just saw and what I just experienced. And not only that, the impact I was able to make and how much I could tangibly feel that. And so I felt not only changed, but compelled and obsessed. I'm like, why doesn't everybody have one of these in the world? Right. This is stupid. Like, why is there death and senseless death and suffering around access to clean water when technology exists? Yeah, but to take that and to make it, I won't say life's work because you you bristle at that, uh, but to take that and to make it the the work of your next chapter full time, that's a whole other deal. It is, but I told you early on how much I'll, I have this crazy ability to focus at a, on a hyper level. Yeah. It was my next obsession. Right. And I, and, and I think obsession is the accurate word. So it's the same way that I just was one track of mine for trying to become a pro surfer and, and doing that yeah. at all costs. It just became the new thing. And, and of course it's more layered than that and it's bigger than that. And I have more understanding and, and it's a new chapter. But. It's interesting because, you know, from the outside looking in, you would see it as a, you know, you undergoing a transformation from a selfish life to one of selflessness. Yeah. And you but, just shook your head. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why not? Because it was still selfish in, it, it was in the sense that it was serving me and in, in my, my same thing. It, it is selfless. What I'm doing, I do care about the impact that we're having i'm yeah. so driven by it i mean i'm i'm very empathic when it when it comes to that like i came back from that i don't think you could have that experience in indonesia and not be changed no matter who you are it's a life-changing experience but the way that i processed that and funneled that was into an obsession of okay i have my path now like i know what what it is that i'm gonna do and because I've just felt what it feels like to barely try and make a huge impression on something. What if I really tried? So how difficult was it to, and how well suited were you to convincing other people that this was important? Um, I think when you're really living your truth, it's not that hard to get people on board truly authentically. But Living your truth is truly living it. So it can't just be like part-time. It can't just be like, no, this is a cool little project I want to shed light on. It's like, hey, I'm living in Haiti for six months in a tent. I'm, and so when you're broadcasting or talking to anybody from that point, there's no question in their mind that you're serious, that you are truly living that truth. Yeah. And that's contagious. And people want to help support that. People want to get and rally behind somebody that's truly in their truth. Um, so I think for me, it was, it was that authenticity of the path and the purpose. So I knew, it's like I knew what my North Star was. I knew what my job was. My job was to provide as many people in the world access to clean water as possible using the solutions that already exist. That could be rain catchment. That could be what digging wells. That can be filtration systems, all of the above. But I had this clear sense of purpose. And I knew that I could just apply myself 110% towards it the same way I did anything else. And I was driven to, because of that, that divine intervention, that divine moment, I, I think 
catalyzed all of that and made it so much more intense and real. But then I took it, you know, and ran with it. Waves for Water has been around now for eight years. Is that accurate? Yeah, 2009. 2009. The end of 2009. And what has it taught you about human nature? Oh, man. I mean, it's really, it's taught me, it's shown me the best of the best and the worst of the worst. It's shown me that the, the human experience is love and suffering. It's both love and war, um, life and death. We all like to think about only the good stuff. And I basically spend majority of my time in a in a in constantly surrounded by the the heaviest state of human suffering, the lowest poverty, the you know, because these are the people that need the help the most. And I think for me what it's taught me is that we and the only way I can make sense of it because it seems so unfair is that we all have a role to play. I'm not necessarily religious, traditionally speaking, but I think we all have a role to play. Um, and even if, the, if if it's a kid who dies at 10 years old of leukemia and how unfair that is, if you think about, well, what if he didn't and the life he could have le- led, I feel like on some bigger picture, some bigger level, he served his time. And it, and there's some some sense of and I and I can't even go into that. I don't even want to, but like I have to believe that. You have to. You have I to have make to. sense of it. I yeah. have to. Yeah. Fun because I'm otherwise you go crazy, man. You go crazy because you're I, exposed to so much. So, so much, much, you know, yeah. the suffering and the and and I know that I can have some impact on mitigating some of that suffering. Yeah. I know that I can have a hand in in helping that suffering a little bit. So I'm driven by that, but I'm also not righteous in the sense that I'm saving people at all. You'll never, ever, ever hear me say that. I don't believe I'm saving people at all. I'm doing my part right. to help correct some of the imbalances that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, so for me, I mean, the whole thing has just really taught me about the human experience and the whole circle of it, all 360 degrees, which a lot of us don't like to look at. You know, we like to look at only... Unless it's on our Facebook feed. Yeah, exactly. You know, people like to mention comments that are good, but then the ones that are bad, that, that they write it off. Right, right. And it's both, you know? It's like people talk about, oh, there's more, there's more war now than ever. Humans have been warring since the beginning of our existence. Um, it changes face. You know, it's different, different themes and different um, environments and stuff like that, but... It's part of the human existence. Yeah. John, thanks a lot, man. Yeah. That was really great. It's <laughs> really great. All right, John Rose, thank you so much for spending that hour with us. Uh, you've been listening to us on ACAST, maybe on iTunes. Be sure to head over to redbulletin.com. And you know what? If you like the podcast, uh, help others find us. Why don't you leave a review for us on on the old iTunes? Uh, I've been your host. Uh, first name James has been your engineer. T. Rizza has been your producer. This is the Red Bulletin Podcast. Uh, special shout out this week to Ryan Turbo for organizing this interview. And uh, see you next time.